0: here's some good news. The Major League Baseball Players Association wants to play hardball with the owners in the year that the labor agreement is expiring. Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports, and this is Daily Shot of Pirates. I do one of these every Monday through Friday morning. If you're into football and or hockey, I also offer Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins as well. I couldn't start your day off better, if you're a Pirates fan, and why would you be listening to this, by the way, if you weren't, than by telling you that the labor thing is already beginning to rumble. Jared Diamond, who does a fantastic job of covering baseball's business matters for the Wall Street Journal, Put out an exclusive report yesterday that said I'm gonna read you the, the intro to it here. Major League Baseball wants to delay or shorten the 2021 season. It has no clear legal grounds to do so without the union's consent. The players are committed to being paid for 162 games and have no intention of making a deal that changes that. For those of you who don't follow baseball labor, and boy, I sure hope that would be the overwhelming majority of you, I'll put that into real Cliff's Notes text here for you. Baseball would love to not play 162 games for the simple reason that they know that the early portion of the season is going to have either very, very small crowds or extremely limited crowds. It could be into April, May, depending on how the vaccine distribution goes, depending on how various branches, federal, state, local governments, react to how the coronavirus situation is settling itself, depending on how late... Spring training gets going, which is another issue because various governing factions in Arizona wrote a letter asking Major League Baseball to delay the Cactus League until there was more time for the virus to clear out of Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is. The players predictably see this as, oh, those owners... They're just trying to take money from us that we earned. That's what Uncle Scott Boris keeps telling us. And they just go along with it like they do with everything in that union. The union listens to Boris. The players listen to the union. Everything stays in harmony, and it's all basically marionetted by Boris, who has convinced Virtually everyone on that side of the equation that the owners and the commissioner's office are just the embodiment of the Antichrist. I'm not guessing at that. I've heard it from far too many people in the business, both sides of the business. Baseball, of course, would be better off if they went with whatever it would be, 100 games, 120 games, and buy everybody some more time to have things get more normalized. It would help them sell tickets. It would help them sell concessions and parking and merchandise and everything else. And, by the way, one thing we never talk about with not having fans inside stadiums are sponsorships. You know, when you go to PNC Park and you look around at the various medallions, the giant ones that are in the stadium. I got to tell you, as someone who went to a lot of games at PNC Park in person in 2020 and being one of like only 10 people who did, those companies didn't get a lot of bang for their buck by me looking at their ads. So those companies are looking for different ways to make sure that They're being fairly recompensated for the money that they put into the teams as well. To me, it's a perfectly reasonable thing that the players would go along with that. But that's just not how this particular union is wired, and it's not what Boris wants. So they're going to turn it into a battle. They'll say, sure, we'll play a shorter schedule. But you got to pay us for all 162 games. Which, of course, the owners have no chance of going along with. And boy, does all of this make me happy. Because in case anybody isn't aware, in December of this year, the labor agreement expires. And the more bad blood there is between the owners and the players... The more money that the owners lose, and they will lose money again this year, the more realistic, the more feasible it becomes that those owners will look across the aisle at football, at hockey, at basketball, at soccer, at every sport, at every level, and say, wait a second. Why are we the only ones without a salary cap again? And how did those guys go about getting one? There were rumblings of this already in 2020. Not, by the way, from the low revenue or low spending teams, however you want to characterize them, like the Pirates or the Rays or the Royals. It wasn't those teams. It was the Cubs. It was the Diamondbacks. You know who lost more money than anybody in 2020? You know which franchise? Take a wild guess. Yeah. Logic dictates. The Yankees. Because they make a ton of money at Yankee Stadium on game days. Pack the place. Sponsorships galore. All the ancillary revenue. Depending on whether or not you believe them, the Yankees reported themselves that they lost deep into nine figures by playing that 60 game schedule in 2020. The Dodgers were up there too. You can say as much as you want about the revenue that they have in normal times, but the losses that they're incurring are real. And contrary to popular mythology, especially in Pittsburgh, owners do not dip into their own pockets to fund sports teams. Hold your fist up in front of your face, and that is the number of owners in any of the four major professional sports who put their own money into their operations. It doesn't happen. Not in Pittsburgh, not anywhere. Not the Roonies, not Mario Lemieux and Ron Burkle, not anywhere. And it's not going to happen in baseball either. When hockey, the most recent sport, to go about getting a salary cap, succeeded in that in 2004, it did so not because... Teams like the Penguins were complaining that they just had to sell off all their players, which they did, and were playing in front of tiny crowds at the Civic Arena, which they were. That's not what made it happen. What made it happen was that the teams at the top of the spending chain, the Maple Leafs, the Red Wings, the Canadiens, the Rangers, they were the ones— who were losing the most money, and they got sick of it. Sure, it took some doing to get everybody to fall in line. They weren't used to being on the same page as teams based in much smaller markets. But they became that way, and the commissioner, Gary Bettman, put in a $1 million fine for any owner who would speak publicly For the duration of his lockout. Actually ended up imposing it once on the owner of the Los Angeles Kings. Million bucks. It took a year and a half. A lot of great players' careers were ended in that year and a half. Guys were just forced to retire because they couldn't just hang on forever. They were getting older. They found something else to do with their lives. But they got it done. They got it done. Everyone always says, oh, the union is so tough. Baseball is different. The baseball union is just, you don't understand. This isn't the same thing. The hockey union was known forever as being the toughest in sports. Tough wasn't even the word for it. They, they, were, they were even accused of criminal activity and stuff. This was about 10, 15 years earlier that I don't have time to get into. for you. They, they were seen as just brutal. No one was ever going to break these guys. Guess what? They never mattered. And the baseball union doesn't matter either. Because they'll file lawsuits and they'll threaten antitrust and, you know, government will get involved and everything else here. But ultimately, all of the keys to this process are in the hands of the 30 owners of the 30 Major League Baseball franchises who employ Rob Manfred as the commissioner. What they say goes. The players can either agree to participate in it, or other players can come along. I don't mean to make it sound simple. I don't mean to make it sound bloodless. I don't even necessarily mean to make it sound likely. But every little step toward that, I will take it. Shut it down. Shut it down for a year. Shut it down for two years. I don't care. This version of baseball is broken, especially in Pittsburgh. When we come back, just one question. Welcome back. It's time for Just One Question. You can participate in this segment yourself By visiting DK Pittsburgh Sports, find the article that encases this podcast and just leave it in the comment section directly underneath there. This segment of Daily Shot is brought to you by our good friends at Mike's Beer Bar. They're located on Federal Street, directly across from PNC Park. Mike has more than 500 beers on tap, including from more than 50 local breweries. Open for business. Stop in and say hello. Tell Mike we sent you. Mike's Beer Bar. Today's just one question comes from OM Bump, who asks, DK, any idea on this new administrative philosophy on moving the kids through the system? Hopefully it's not like the last one that didn't want people coming up until they would be 26 or 28 years old (laughs) so that they would be controllable during their primes. Uh, First of all, this is a really good question that would entail an awful lot of explanation and analysis. And I dare say I might risk boring some people in that process. Not that your question is boring. It's terrific. So I'll try this in the short version. I've asked Ben Charrington how he feels about a player's progress through the minors, whether or not he feels or would ever feel comfortable with a fast track. His answer was, a very enthusiastic affirmative. The sooner that we get that player to Pittsburgh uh, on a responsible pathway, the better it is for the Pirates. If we want to keep that player into his prime, and obviously it takes two to tango with this, we can approach that player at, at even a very young age and see what we can do about buying out Uh, the arbitration years, but also maybe even a year or two of free agency. So you would think, based on what I just said, that you might entertain doing something like that with Kibrian Hayes. Kibrian wasn't fast-tracked, but I'm citing him as an example of a player you'd want to keep past those six years. Once a player is in the major leagues... You've got that player's rights for six full years before they can become free agents. Again, there's a lot of mythology out there, especially in Pittsburgh, about this stuff. And people think as soon as a prospect comes up, oh, no, they're going to be a free agent next year. You've got that player for six full years. Seven if you mess with the clock. Don't ask me to get into that one either. Why wouldn't the Pirates put somebody through? Well, If you have a Scott Boris client, you might want to at least consider pushing the clock back. And not to make this entire episode about bashing Boris, but Boris instructs his clients, almost without exception, to test free agency. No matter how happy they are or where they are, he doesn't like young players signing extensions. Unless he knows they're not any good and he's ripping somebody off blind. But he doesn't like them signing extensions. He doesn't like them giving up their free agency years. And he doesn't see his clients just as individuals. He sees them as part of a broader thing that allows him to control baseball and everything else. So when the Pirates got Garrett Cole, and Cole was extraordinarily mature... Number one overall pick, but also came with a major league frame. And very clear immediately that he wasn't going to stay in the minors very long. Uh, No one was going to be able to keep him down. He was just overwhelming hitters. And you'd really be embarrassing yourself if that player was, like, you know, in A-ball for two years or something because you want to manipulate his clock. But then there was the case of Josh Bell, also a Boris client, and Bell had question marks and for every time he'd go on one of these tears in the miners, And I remember talking to Neil Huntington about this at the time, that he was kind of sensitive to it. And JB wasn't all that happy about it because he thought he should have been getting moved along faster. His parents were really mad about it, by the way. And they let the pirates know about it on a fairly regular basis, as did Boris in turn. They wanted to see their kid in the major sooner. Boris just wanted to make sure that nobody was manipulating Boris' clients. And uh, there's never been any love lost between Boris and the preceding front office of the Pirates. So all of that was kind of an ugly scene. But... Funny thing, J.B. gets to Pittsburgh, and he ends up being pretty much the same player he was in the minors, which is that he'd go on this massive tear, and you'd think you're looking at Willie Stargell, too. And then there was the other stuff. Charrington says he'll fast-track guys if needed. If they draft Kumar Rocker, he's not going to be in the minors for very long. Rocker's another one, already a solid, mature build, even now at Vanderbilt. If Rocker ends up being their guy, you'll see him in a big hurry. But the stalling thing, I've learned not to believe anybody when they say that they don't do things to manipulate service time clocks. So uh, as much as I've respected Charrington to date, uh, let's see what he actually does in this regard when players are doing extremely well in the miners, especially now that he's actually got some there? Good question. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll do this again tomorrow.